Welcome back to the Jacob Wolf Show, coming to you live here today from a rainy Washington, D.C. on Thursday, December 15th. A lot of news to discuss today. Of course, right after the last episode, Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas. The indictment uh, from the U.S. Department of Justice ended up coming in on Friday, uh, and he was... uh, ultimately not arrested until Monday afternoon. The indictment unsealed Tuesday morning, just after the last show. That's what happens sometimes. Uh, But it is why you really have to do a show like this at least twice a week. You can't, you really just can't do it uh, less frequently than that. If you do, you have to catch up so much. You have to cut out other items. The show loses a lot of its substance. You can do a magazine news show where you do, you know, two current stories and you know, three long-term reports or something like that, or one long, two long-term reports, one current story, a 60-minute style thing. But you can't do a show like this once a week. So I appreciate your support. That's why, in part, we had to bring it independent. Uh, of course, this show aired for well over two years on Censored.TV called Man Up with Jacob Wolf. It's now called The Jacob Wolf Show. And I appreciate all of your support. Uh, but before we get into all of this critical news... We, we, we had to stop the presses. I had to rewrite some of this show, as sometimes happens with breaking news. Uh, the reason is that Donald Trump is out with a major announcement. A major announcement. That's right. Uh, he is out with a major announcement. Have you seen this uh, major announcement from Trump? Uh, here's the video if you have uh, missed it so far. Hello, everyone. This is Donald Trump, hopefully your favorite president of all time, better than Lincoln, better than Washington, with an important announcement to make. I'm doing my first official Donald J. Trump NFT collection right here and right now. They're called Trump Digital Trading Cards. These cards feature some of the really incredible artwork pertaining to my life and my career. It's been very exciting. You can collect your Trump digital cards just like a baseball card or other collectibles. Here's one of the best parts. Each card comes with an automatic chance to win amazing prizes like dinner with me. I don't know if that's an amazing prize, but it's what we have. Or golf with you and a group of your friends at one of my beautiful golf courses, and they are. That's all I'm gonna show that video there, but as you can see, it's. That was Trump's major announcement that he teased over the last week. It's pretty unbelievable. Somebody says here, I don't think Trump knew what an NFT was before two months ago. Yeah, probably not. And the part about that that is you know, remarkable is that NFTs are now down and out. Many of them are trading at 1% or 0% of the value that they traded for uh, earlier in the year. It has recently been revealed that many of these uh, bored ape NFTs and these other NFTs that were praised as being so avant-garde, so trendy, and so uh, cutting edge, well, it turns out that their valuations were purely the result of fraudulent market manipulation. That's some of the news that we have out in the last week. Uh, The creator of the bored ape NFT now uh, sued over that by regulators. They were not, in fact, so cutting edge that the likes of Justin Bieber and others wanted to buy them. No, they were uh, 
in situations kind of like that of Kim Kardashian and Floyd Mayweather pumping shit coins to their audience, in this case, what you had going on was that these celebrities were paid large amounts of fiat dollars, yes, regular old US dollars, to say that they were purchasing these for a price. That was all compensated to them. Kind of like when you heard Tom Brady had invested $600 million in FTX. Remember that? Remember when you heard that Tom Brady invested $600 million into FTX? We keep hearing that Kevin O'Leary invested money into FTX. It's not clear that he ever actually did. I've not seen any evidence he did. He may have. I don't see any evidence he did. Tom Brady certainly didn't. He was comped a bunch of those tokens and some equity and everything else. He didn't take his football earnings, his uh, endorsement and sponsorship earnings and pile them into FTX, at least as far as the records, the paperwork, the accounting suggests. So it's just another scam. Uh, if you really do want these pictures of Trump, you can go to my Telegram channel and download them there. Uh, of course, I just downloaded them right off of this website. You just click Save As on the JPEG, or in this case, a WebP. I went ahead and converted them to JPEGs for you so that they're more compatible. That's all you have to do. Um, they're just photos. They're digital. Um, they aren't like trading cards in that sense because they're digital files. There is something about digital files that's inherently uh, less satisfying than than real uh, brick and mortar, uh, you know, atoms. There's something less satisfying about bits and bytes. Like, you know, those books behind me on the shelf, a lot of those books, I have audiobook copies of them as well. And the reason I have audiobook copies of them is because I, I, I don't have a lot of time to read. And one of the best times for me to read is either when I'm out on a walk with the dogs uh, I can play an audiobook. Uh, of course I don't have, you know, both headphones in or anything like that. I have, you know, usually just playing out loud if I'm in a private area or, or I have, uh, uh, one, you know, AirPod in that's, I can still hear out of my ears, but I'll do that. Or I'll, I'll listen to audiobooks in the car. That's another good time. Occasionally at the gym. Uh, and so I have both, but one of the dissatisfying things about digital audiobooks is I can't, you know, lend it to my friend. Can't say, hey, check out this book, at least as far as I know. But I can do that with a physical book. I can give the book away to a friend, buy myself another copy later. I've done that a lot. Can't do that with digital files. I mean, you know, what would you do with this? Tell your friend to, you know, get staked on the Solana blockchain and set up some kind of, you know, totally arcane technology and then send it to him that way and then when he's done, send it back. It's it's just ridiculous. So look, the, the broader point here, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about crypto and FTX and all of this, but I'm just saying this this major announcement, quote unquote, from Trump was, was absolutely a dud. It's unbelievable. One of the things that I noticed when I looked at um, the comments of this post, I mean, and there were thousands of comments, is that even on this post, which you think would evoke some kind of response from people on Truth Social? Nope. I scrolled through the comments for five minutes and all I saw were the same typical bot comments. And these are bots. These are not real people. They are bot networks commenting JPEGs of Trump. They post 70,000 times a day, various, you know, Trump photos commenting um, incoherent diatribes about vaccines, commenting you know, go buy this 
uh, colloidal silver soap to save yourself from the virus. I mean, you name it, just, just spam. It was just spam bot comments, thousands of them. And that's really most of what I see on Truth Social. I think there's very little in the way of real users on that website. And if, in fact, the company's operating this SPAC and raising public dollars and then they are you know, lying about their number of active users by coordinating this bot ne- network, because I can't imagine who else would be coordinating it. I mean, why else would you do that? Certainly, certainly there are some outsiders that do it, but a lot of it's not for commercial use. Uh, then what you are going to find is that there's going to be serious action from the SEC on this, and it may land in the lap of uh, former President Trump himself at some point. Uh, it's it's just it's really disgusting. It's uh, tiresome. It's tiresome to have to be you know sold these scams and and have to defend them and all of that. It, this is totally unbecoming of somebody who says they're running for president in 2024. It's totally not serious. I, I've had so many people that have been ardent Trump supporters for years who contact me. They say, I can't do this anymore. It's just, I, I, I'm, they say, I'm, they, they say to me that they're just tired of having to defend this kind of scam artistry that is taking place at a Mar-a-Lago. And I don't know what to tell them. Richard Hanania on Twitter. Um, I know I don't read crime fiction. I see you in the chat. I don't know. I don't know about crime fiction. Not not my expertise. Rolling Stones NFT now down hundred percent. Yet they called Trump's NFT a scam. Yeah, well they're all they're all scams, right? So I don't know. The NFTs are worthless, and and Trump is selling them after the others have been exposed to scams. Richard Hanania posted on Twitter. He said, "Feels like he's given up on becoming president again, and is simply." going to squeeze those fat boomers for everything they've got left. It does feel that way. You know, whoever the boomers are out there that actually respond to those GOP spam texts and donate to the GOP, big article out in Red State about the GOP wasting money on clothing, makeup, purses, luxury travel, private jets. You can read that on redstate.com. Don't have time for it on today's show. It's on my Telegram channel linked, t.me slash Jacob A. Wool. Whoever those boomers are, I mean, it, it does feel like it's just all about selling them garbage and, and taking their money. I mean, that's what it that's what it feels like. And, you know, there there comes a point where it's just so undignified. I mean, if you're really a billionaire or you're really worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, which I have reason to believe Trump is. I mean, we have no reason to believe that he's not wealthy. They keep, you know, getting his tax returns. In fact, you recall the Supreme Court finally said Congress can have them. We haven't seen any news stories out of Congress about those tax returns. They haven't been leaking Trump's tax returns, even though they got a hold of them. What does that tell you? It tells you that he's probably about as rich as he says he is, right? Because why would, why would he, why wouldn't we have leaks coming out of that now that Congress has Trump's tax returns. Of course, we would have leaks. But there comes a point where if you're that rich, and frankly, even a lot less rich than that, you don't do low rent, tacky things uh, like, like this. In fact, one of the things that Bill O'Reilly was pilloried for, 
for a long time and even Rush Limbaugh for a period of time is that like Rush Limbaugh, probably the best example, but O'Reilly too. O'Reilly paid $40 million a year. Rush Limbaugh, they paid between $100 million and $500 million a year to broadcast on the radio a few hours a day. And yet these people who had this incredible deal going where people liked them so much that they could, and so many people liked them so much, they could make $500 million a year or Bill O'Reilly's case, 40, 50 million a year from Fox News alone, radio show, separate thing, book deals, a separate thing, speaking gigs, a separate thing. Then why do you need to tell people to go to BillOReilly.com and buy the, you know, Bill O'Reilly sponge or the Bill O'Reilly coffee mug or the, you know, Rush Limbaugh uh, golf rag? Yeah, they actually sold a golf rag or, you know, driver, uh, uh, you know, golf club cover or, you know, buy the Rush Limbaugh uh, lunch pail or, or whatever. There's, there comes a point where you don't do that because it's just tacky. It's unbecoming. And it pierces the sincerity that is essential to your entire larger enterprise. And I think one of the reasons that Trump was so successful in 2016, in fact, I know this is the case, is that he was perceived by a, a large proportion of the public as being more genuine, more genuine than other politicians. He didn't fake it and roll up his sleeves and pretend to be a blue collar Joe, uh, for instance. He didn't uh, speak in the normal political speak, the euphemisms, the talking in circles. But I, I also am, am beginning to observe that as time has gone on, Trump is perceived as being less genuine than the most sort of talented politicians. Maybe not than all politicians, but less genuine than many politicians. I think that many people, uh, in fact, in 2016 found Trump, to, or 2020 rather, because you really can't be any less genuine than Hillary Clinton. That's not possible. But I, I think that in 2020, a lot of people found Joe Biden, for whatever reason, to be more genuine than Trump, more endearing than Trump. I don't believe that. It's a facade. It's a lie. Joe Biden's one of the most corrupt and and belligerent people ever to walk the halls of the Capitol. Everybody knows that. Joe Biden's a mean son of a bitch. I mean, he'll walk up to you and curse you out. And there aren't many people who will do that. But Joe Biden will. So anyway, it's something we're going to have to continue to cover. I've got a segment later in the show to talk more about Trump's campaign. We're jumping around here a little bit today. But uh, that is... Uh, something that I'm just observing here, it's sad to see this uh, come out here and, and, and see this kind of thing. Also should update you that um, earlier in the week, uh, in fact, yesterday, I was in court in PG County, beautiful Prince George's County outside of Washington, D.C., the last of the self-file criminal charges filed by Jamie Menina down there, the former FBI agent and former Hillary Clinton staffer, senior staffer to Clinton, who was busted on Predator DC. He, he first tried to serve us with legal threats, uh, civ threats of civil litigation. We contacted the law firm on those th uh, threats. They said they knew nothing about it. They were counterfeit. He then went in and started doing these self-file motions. Uh, he had his, or you know, the lawyer did on his own volition, maybe showed up on Monday at a different courthouse, unannounced, and contacted us directly walked up to us directly, which is totally outside of legal ethics, knowing that we are represented by counsel for him to do that. And he did anyway, this Joshua Hoffman, 
I should say Joshua E. Hoffman, Joshua Elliott Hoffman, because there's a couple Joshua Hoffmans. His name is Joshua E. Hoffman. And he walked up to us and, you know, showed off his Nazi trench coat. I'm not kidding you. Told us about his Nazi trench coat that came with his Nazi costume that he was wearing along with black leather gloves indoors in all black. Well, uh, yesterday in PG County, the last of his charges were thrown out, uh, not by even the judge, but by prosecutors, because there was absolutely no merit to any of them. So that was good news. And uh, good to see that happen finally. It's a a big pain in the ass to deal with this stuff, uh, but that has now uh, been dealt with. We have been victorious, and and our work at Predator DC continues. So I, I appreciate all of your support with everything uh, in that realm. It's certainly not cheap to have to deal with these issues that arise like that, but it has to be done. And and we think we serve an important role. Uh, okay. Let's talk a little bit here about Sam Bankman Freed, this situation out of the Bahamas. A couple data points I want to bring you here. And I don't even really care about this story from a crypto angle. The reason that this story is important is that it reveals a lot about the overall system. When you have something that is a a hub of this much power and this many lies and this much money, it reveals a lot about what is taking place. Now, uh, one of the first reactions that I saw when Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested on Monday afternoon, just after the taping of our show or the streaming of our show uh, here, are takes like this, where uh, this is from Leia uh, Halprim. Uh, There are so many of these bimbos who literally, you know, call themselves crypto chicks and have these avatar photos with their boobs hanging out. I mean, just, you know, enormous breasts hanging out of their shirts, sometimes bikinis, uh, telling you to buy crypto. And and half the time, by the way, the profile, you reverse image search, it's not even, it's like some other woman, some other celebrity from overseas and nothing to do with crypto. That's just faking it. Don't don't know what the deal is in this case, but she says SPF getting arrested isn't a good thing. He was meant to testify under oath before Congress uh, today who who would then charge him with a crime. See, I mean, it's just the misunderstanding by these people is so remarkable. Congress would charge him with a crime. How would Congress charge him with a crime? What a freaking numbskull this person is. They can refer if he, you know, reveals a crime. They can refer people to that if he perjures himself or submits false documents. They can, they can make a referral. These people are so dumb. She is British. No, this person's British. Like Congress would charge him with a crime. I'm just astonished. Got to say, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's best shot would have probably been a Carlos Ghosn-style extraction to Israel. Carlos Ghosn snuck out. He had a band perform for his birthday. He was charged in Japan. Much more minor charges, arguably fake, in a system where it's guilty until proven innocent. And he was uh, put into an instrument case that this band brought in and snuck out of the country uh, back to Lebanon, where he's a citizen, and he is uh, home with his family now. I'm not certain that him being extracted to Israel would have been successful. I I can't even guess what the probability is that that would be successful, but it, it seems to me it would probably be his best shot. Uh, the following morning, the SEC and CFTC also both filed civil complaints. As usual, they're just in the nick of time after all of the losses have already happened. Um, so he was set to testify before the House Financial Services Committee Tuesday morning. I don't think that the utility to the public of that testimony would have been 
very high at all. Uh, I think mostly it would have been the same talking in circles, the same lies, the same I don't remember. Um, it, I just don't think it would have gone very well. Now, if Congress had actually served a subpoena instead of just requesting, well, then Sam Bankman fried could have testified anyway from his jail cell virtually the same way that he was going to testify virtually uh, from his hotel room before. I think he was living in a hotel is what I've heard. He could have done that. But they never did serve him with a subpoena. Again, I don't think it would have been very useful. I think it would have been a big waste of time. However, who we did get to hear from the next day was John J. Ray uh, III, R-A-Y, that is, not related to Christopher Ray, which is W-R-A-Y. He is now the CEO of FTX for purposes of restructuring. Um, If I were him, I'd call myself the executor, really. I wouldn't even call myself the CEO, but I, I guess that's what it's technically called. He's bringing the company through the bankruptcy. Uh, and he, of course, has the background with doing the Enron bankruptcy and I think a number of others. Really credible guy, came off as very, very knowledgeable, had a good handle on the situation, acknowledged where he didn't have expertise, didn't make recommendations as far as regulation or do those sorts of things. And I also have to say, I watched the entirety of that you know, five-hour hearing or whatever it was, or at least listened to it. And uh, I was amazed by just how well the hearing went. I must say it was it was probably the most revelatory in investigation, uh, investigative hearing that is that Congress has ever done. It was minimal grandstanding. There was a little bit, but very minimal grandstanding. A lot of good questions, even from people like AOC. Uh, they didn't attack John Ray for making thirteen hundred an hour to do this. How much would you want to make to do this? It's not nearly enough, if you ask me. Um, they didn't attack him. And it was just, I mean, there was a lot learned as far as the fact they were using QuickBooks, as far as some of the factoids that we just had never heard before. The eight-count indictment laid out by the DOJ, uh, which included campaign finance violations, was very sparse on detail, uh, very light on detail. That's kind of standard for something they're rushing through. Of course, I think it's all but certain what we will see coming out soon are, of course, indictments of other people, but also a superseding indictment of Bankman-Fried himself which has additional counts, additional detail on the existing counts, basically an amended indictment is what they would usually call it in state court. We call it here, uh, it could be amended, but it's actually going to be superseding because it will have additional counts. But I, I can't help but compare John Ray to Christopher Ray. And recall that King and Spaulding were paying Christopher Ray, or was paying Christopher Ray, uh, $9.2 million a year prior to him becoming FBI director. Nobody gets paid that much. Clearly some kind of bribe or, or something. I mean, it's just, it makes zero sense. Now, uh, SBF had already submitted his written remarks uh, to the Financial Services Committee for his testimony. In those remarks, he planned to open by saying, I effed up, but actually say the uh, full uh, profanity. Of course, that's an absolute insult to Congress. It's arguably not even legal. Uh, and... Uh, it's it's so it's so emblematic of this Gen Z millennial kind of trend where you use profanity at inappropriate times, especially among that Silicon Valley tech crowd. It's so common, and it, they think it's cool and edgy. It's just not. It's not cool and edgy. It makes you sound dumb. I don't like it at all. Um, so it's it's just it's it's really unbelievable. Now, a couple little uh, bits of facts that I've discovered. If you've been following me over the last week, you might have seen some of these on my Telegram channel, but. 
Uh, here's a picture of SBF being arraigned. He was given some drugs. He takes 10 milligrams of Adderall apparently six times a day or four times a day. I forget. Uh, maybe I think it's probably four times a day. I don't know how you'd ever sleep if you were taking it equally four times a day. I don't know how you would ever sleep because even short acting Adderall would, I don't know how that would work. Um, as well as this ESAM for tremors. So I, I don't know if he has some kind of neurological condition, some kind of uh, Parkinson's, but he apparently gets really bad tremors. He had to step out of the courtroom, take off his shirt, put on a patch of the ESAM during this uh, arraignment in the Bahamas. This is not a U.S. arraignment. He is fighting extradition. His hearing now has been set for uh, February 8th, uh, follow-up hearing. He has put, put, he thought he was going to get bail down there, be able to live in his apartment. $250,000 bail was requested by his attorney. Uh, they said no to bail, citing flight risk. So he is at the Fox Hill prison, one of the worst prisons in the world, uh, pending that next hearing. It is said that he can fight extradition for months or even potentially years because there are built-in appeals in that process, kind of like the death penalty here in the U.S. My guess is uh, spending some time in that place will make him waive the extradition. I imagine that will happen. Uh, but maybe in a Bahamian prison, there will be some way to coax some guards and escape. I wonder if he's got that in mind. Uh, I don't think that Sam Bankman-Fried will be offed by corrupt Bahamian officials that obviously profited from FTX or anything like that. Uh, the reason is that if Sam Bankman-Fried were to die, the attention would immediately turn to those officials. It would turn to these other people who right now are enjoying the fact that Sam Bankman-Fried is sucking all the oxygen out of the room. He is getting all the attention. You know, all these other people that were involved in FTX, maybe they get three to seven years, something like that. Uh, he probably gets 20, 25 or 50 or more. It's, um, it's a remarkable story, but, uh, it just it, it it seems that if if he dies, that's not good for all these other people, because then the attention turns to them. It's sort of like with Glenn Maxwell, they scream trafficker, child trafficker, and they they screamed it so often and and so loudly, again and again, that people never stop to ask the question. Well, wait a second, but trafficked to whom? The media certainly didn't. The, the, the prosecutors say she trafficked to these all these high profile people. Okay, but who who are they? Oh, they never said, and they still haven't said. It's never been said. It wasn't. It's not as though there were redacted names. There just weren't any names in any of the documents. Nothing. Nothing. So it is uh, just uh, a, a thing in which I don't think that it makes sense for him to be killed. It doesn't make sense to me. Now, could he die? Sure. He seems to be in pretty fragile health, pretty poor health. He's on a lot of medications. Um, he's soft. Seems possible. It seems quite possible. Um, you know, there's a story now that's being put out in the last several days by Kevin O'Leary citing discussions with Sam Bankman-Fried uh, that claims SBF bought back either $2 billion or perhaps $3 billion of FTX stock equity that was that was owned by Binance and that Binance had invested at, say, a, a early stage $200 million valuation and that he had to buy it back from Binance at a $32 billion valuation. And the reason is that he couldn't get regulatory, clear, regulatory clearance because Binance wouldn't provide certain documents. How much of that story is true? I don't know. But it is a story that is being put out there. 
Uh, if, in fact, Binance did make those sorts of profits from this criminal enterprise, uh, they should probably be clawed back. If they can be, ultimately, who knows? Uh, it is is just kind of remarkable. So, look, there's the, there's this entire debate right now about uh, whether or not the SEC or the CFTC should regulate crypto. Uh, and I'm here to tell you that that debate is a facade. It's It's a canard meant to confuse and distract the public who don't have an understanding of the way that securities regulations work. So first of all, let's say this. Neither the FTC, well, the FTC as well, they're also civil regulatory, but the SEC and the CFTC, they do not have criminal prosecution authority. They don't have arrest authority. They don't have search warrant authority. They they don't do that. They can issue subpoenas. They can make referrals for prosecution. They can do lawsuits. They can file motions, have assets frozen. They have civil regulatory authorities. That's the first thing that you have to understand. The IRS can arrest people. The Department of Homeland Security can arrest people. Many other departments have arrest authority, but the SEC, the CFTC, the FTC, these are not departments that do. FCC, same thing. Okay? That's the first thing to understand. They can sue. Now, the second thing to understand is that both the SEC and the CFTC already regulate crypto. Yes, they do. And if they say that your crypto project is a security, it, in in fact, and in point of fact, becomes your obligation to prove it's not. That is sort of the way that things practically work. And it is also important to understand that they both have jurisdiction under the law. The SEC to deal in securities, regulate securities. The CFTC handles regulation of currencies and related derivatives. You must understand that. So they both have relevant jurisdiction here, as is. Importantly, both agencies have brought out a great number of regulatory actions, a large number of regulatory actions uh, dating back to, I mean, at least 2017, probably much earlier. Both agencies have. In some cases, they both actioned the same case. I have lobbied involving cases like that. They have done that here as well. They have different authorities. They manage different parts of it. So if you have a hedge fund that's involved in forex trading fraud and they're involved in stock trading fraud, both agencies will generally step in and sue. The CFTC will deal with the allegations concerning uh, foreign exchange currencies, derivatives of, uh, of the sort, and the SEC will handle the securities part. Or if there's commodity futures, they'll handle the commodity futures part. This already happens. Again, It's not a debate about what to do. They're not frozen in time, not knowing what to do. They have already taken action in both cases. Okay? They already have. You have to understand that. And it's also important to understand there's been this claim that the the CFTC is weak. They don't have the same powers the SEC has. That is false. The CFTC and the SEC have identical civil regulatory power in terms of the severity of that power. They have different jurisdictions. They, They manage different parts of the block. You know, just like the FCC manages communications and broadcasts and things like that. So you've got to understand that. I mean, they, they, they have identity. It's not like one can sue and one can't or, you know, one has the ability to issue subpoenas. One doesn't No, they, they both have those abilities and they have both done that. They have both also made a lot of criminal referrals over time, resulting in charges and in many cases, convictions of people. So you must understand that about those agencies. This whole debate about what do they do? There's regulatory uh, ambiguity. No, there's really not. There's really not regulatory ambiguity here. There is already an abundance of regulation. There are arguably too many regulations as is. And uh, 
you know, having having more regulations will will not fix anything. The other part is you have to remember, Bernie Madoff was audited, full audit, full forensic audit by the SEC eight times, put under oath eight times as part of this and as part of, you know, his his business. And uh, he was a regulated broker dealer and then had his advisory business off to the side. They never detected any fraud. He had clients in many states. None of those state regulators detected any fraud. Where he needed to be registered as an investment advisor, he often was, and they never detected any fraud. So the regulators cannot and will not save you. Well, maybe they could at some point, but the, the reality is, no, they can't and, and they won't. Something being regulated doesn't make it magically safe for you, just so you know. Okay, that's that's another important note. Now, uh, in the Senate hearing, which was much shorter, I think only two hours, um, they had a lot of other points to be made. Uh, One thing is that Senator Haggerty described a Binance in an open hearing in that Senate hearing as being both state-backed and, quote, ties to the CCP. I listened to this live. So apparently maybe in their intel committee hearings on separate committees, they've been briefed by CIA. It's what I've said for a long time. If this uh, CZ character is actually Canadian, then why can't he speak proper English? You tell me that. He says, oh, no, no, I have a Chinese name and, you know, I look Chinese, but I'm actually Canadian. Really? I mean, you might have a Canadian passport, but are you really Canadian? You really grew up in Canada? Well, then why don't you speak like you're barely understandable? This guy's barely understandable. His accent's so thick. How is that possible? Doesn't make a lick of sense. And I do think that uh, it's probably backed by the Chinese. It's probably a Chinese operation. Uh you know, it turns out to be the case that you know China pushes a lot of these kind of things on the world and bans them in their own country. Fentanyl, uh, they Chinese media promotes pot use. Uh, they push TikTok on the West, but they don't even offer the version of TikTok that we have to their own citizens because it's so degenerate and so addictive and and worthless. Uh, China pushes video games on on the world, but in their own country they have very tight controls as to how long kids are allowed to play games, uh, play video games. They push cryptocurrency on the world through CZ and others, but it's banned in their own country. It's unreal. I I heard one person make this point in this uh, hearing, but I said for a long time, I I really don't care about the opinions of crypto fraudsters, crypto investors, other, you know, internet goobers or people who are otherwise conflicted. I have said blockchain is a stupid technology because often people say it's a revolutionary technology. No, it's not. It's really not. It's an archaic technology. It's an inefficient technology. It's a slow technology. It's a technology that's very difficult to scale. It's not a great technology at all. It's a stupid technology. And when you do kind of crypto blockchain trades and transactions, people say how great it is because of the transparency. Why is that great? Do I not deserve privacy over my financial transactions? Do, do I want my financial transactions, every financial transaction that I do, to be scrutinized by anyone who decides to look at them? No, I don't. It's none of their business whether I subscribe to Netflix or don't. And I think most people agree on that. So it's, it, it's really the worst of both worlds. Normal consumers obviate their privacy. They obviate their banking secrecy. And if you're a ransomware hacker, well, and if you're sophisticated enough, there's a number of techniques you can use to evade that transparency, to uh, evade detection, to do transactions 
what they call off-chain. So you're doing cryptocurrency transactions, but they aren't on the chain. You hand somebody a thumb drive and they hand you a bag of cash, let's say. So it's it's something that I, I really agree. It's the worst of both worlds. Now, I found this clip of Sam Bankman-Fried's father. And I got to say, if this were my father, I might be pretty messed up too. Listen Listen to his father. It was just, this guy's so creepy. Listen to this. FTX, like, did Sam ask you to come on or did you realize, okay, like Sam needs a hand. I'm going to come on and help him. How, how did that initial interaction go? Well, uh, I don't know. I think we've always enjoyed working together and thinking together. At least I like to think so. So when I really came on was after Sam asking me for a number of years if I'd be interested in doing it, which was really gratifying. I think any parent would love to hear that. Uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, I could do it and be useful. But I think from the start, whenever I was useful, I lend a hand. And it was clear at the start that on things like law, I mean, the company didn't have any lawyers. So I think my utility there was pretty obvious. Well, Kevin O'Leary stated that Sam Bankman-Fried's parents were both compliance lawyers. I have seen no evidence that they're compliance lawyers. It seems to me that they're tax law professors and, in fact, that they deal in the very vague areas of tax law like, you know, sort of should we have redistributive taxes or not? These kind of sort of uh, very philosophical areas of tax law, let's say. Uh, his mother... Uh, was in a YouTube video. She's a little bit less strange, at least in terms of the way she speaks, deeper voice than the father. You can see where, why Sam Bankman Friedman, uh, Sam Bankman Fried uh, speaks the way that he does. Uh, but Joseph uh, Bankman is the father and Barbara Fried is the mother. Uh, and, you know, she is uh, kind of strange herself. She has this view that, you know, ethics are not important. She says generalized ethics classes really don't have a great utility. Maybe if there's a doctor, they teach him a brief class of medical ethics. I, I kind of watch this from her. She's talking in circles, kind of like he does. But, you know, here she is in a video on a panel called Does Teaching Ethics Do Any Good? Well, I think we got the answer to that question. I think we got the answer uh, to that. Uh, there was a case of this uh, McCaffrey Michael McCaffrey runs this uh, operation called The Block, which was supposed to be an independent crypto technology news website. Well, he stepped down as CEO of The Block. He's the founder. He owns like 80% of the company because, well, it, it turns out that he got a $16 million undisclosed loan from Sam Bankman-Fried, personally signed off by Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, he then got an additional loan for uh, $25 million or more. Uh, and uh, there were more loans. I think they totaled $43 million in undisclosed loans, uh, which were handed out through LLCs like MJM McCaffrey LLC, another LLC called Lonely Road, uh, Red Sea was another's. Um, uh, just, just remarkable. Uh, and And he was, of course, giving very biased coverage to this, he stopped an investigation that his website did into FTX that would have uh, revealed the fraud that was taking place. Obviously, this person should be prosecuted themselves. They should be prosecuted themselves. Uh, it is it is really un unbelievable that this was allowed to happen, uh, that it was allowed to take place, and 
I mean, it's just it, the site should shut down. It's obviously worthless. Um, obviously, totally worthless. I think you know, really, if if there's going to remain any kind of cryptocurrency business, all of the legitimate business is going to be basically based out of Chicago. It's going to operate the way that exchanges should operate, where the custody of funds, the exchange, the market makers, it's all separate. And that way, conflicts of interest are removed. Uh, that's kind of the way that I see this happening. And I've talked to sources within the Chicago finance world that agree with that. Uh, that's kind of their view. Uh, people that are involved in that, invested in that, people that run exchanges and run market-making firms in Chicago, to the extent there is any business that remains in this realm, that's where it's going to be done. That's where it's going to be. There are going to be the the you know infrastructure in place to uh, prevent this sort of thing from happening. That will happen within say 12, 18, 24 months. Uh, so it's 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 a remarkable thing. And and uh, I want to get to some of your questions here. I have been kind of saving a few uh, here for a few shows. Want to take them here? Um, okay, we, we start here with Neil. Uh, Neil says, have you ever noticed that when the topic of speaking a foreign language is brought up in a conversation, many people are compelled to make wishy-washy claims about how they know X language, but then add some strange caveat. For example, I can speak Spanish perfectly when I hear it, but can't speak it very well. Or or I understand it perfectly. Um, I speak a little, I'm conversational. When in reality, they know a few words and phrases and nothing more. If, if you notice this phenomenon, why do you think people do this? Perhaps Americans are desperately want to appear more worldly. So that, you know, that's part of it. There's this idea that travel is some kind of a personality when it's not. Um, you know, what I do is I don't really talk about what I speak with people. You know, I just kind of surprise them with it. Some of you know, what other language I speak, because I, I've talked about it previously, but it's not it's not really something that I boast about, brag about, talk about. And um, if I meet somebody from a certain place, you know, I mean, I'll tell you what, there's, there's nothing more impressive to somebody uh, than when, say you've, you've been dating a girl for a while, you've never mentioned, ever, ever mentioned Let's say that you speak Russian and then you happen to have a Russian waiter or you happen to be with somebody, you know, say one of her friends that's Russian and then boom, you just start talking, you know, speaking with them in Russian perfectly. You know, let's say fluently, maybe not perfectly, but fluently. You're, the person looks, they, they look freaked out, but they are impressed in some sort of way that is just, you know, remarkable. So I would recommend to just surprise people with your capabilities, you know, undersell and over deliver. That's, that's what I believe. And that's what I do. It's really, it's won me a lot of respect, uh, in situations and won me a lot of, uh, you know, uh, people have been impressed with it. So that's what I would say. But in terms of like the, the bigger reason for this, I would say that, you know, really it's, it's an issue of you use it or you lose it. Of course, like, you know, my fluency in Russian goes down if I don't use it very often, if I use it a lot, it goes up. I mean, everybody knows this just because it's not even really, it, when I say fluency, I really mean how fluidly it, it just rolls off the tongue and comes out and the words are where they need to be in your brain. Um, you start dreaming in it. So your dreams are, are productive, you know, practice uses and all of that. Uh, but I would say, you know, it, you use it or you lose it unless it's ingrained as at a sort of a native level as a first language during childhood. If it's your first language during childhood, 
that's the case. Uh, but I would say if English is your first language, you know, and it's it's the language that you were born speaking, your native language, count yourself lucky. And that's kind of the second point is that um, English is just such a dominant language that you really, as, as an American, unless you're in a very specialized realm, like you're a translator for a living, or you just do business constantly in country X where they speak X language, um, you really find very little reason to use other languages besides English very often. That's the thing. And so as an American, as a Brit, uh, as, as a Nigerian, I guess, or, you know, I, well, Nigeria's got other languages spoken more often, but it's just something where if you're native in English, you, you just, and you're in America or you're in Britain, you, you don't find a lot of reason to speak other languages most of the time. You just don't, I mean, I, I just don't get a lot of opportunities to practice Russian in the real world. So, and the other thing is you're native, you talk to your loved ones and then you talk to your, you know, local expatriate friends. So that's really the thing. You just, you don't find a lot of good reasons to use the other language. Uh, count, count yourself lucky. Um, and, uh, you know, if it's important to you practice more, I guess, but uh, yeah, I, I see that. And I just don't talk about it and just, you know, use it when you can, if, if you find it to be useful and, and, um, you know, do your best, I, I guess. Um, Clay asks here, hey, Jacob, I'm curious if you got any insight into the aid that you, how the aid to Ukraine is being spent. How much is spent there or here roughly in what amounts? I've done some research and it's been pretty vague. The raw amount of money is very vast. I doubt that Ukrainian men know how to operate really advanced military equipment that the U.S. makes, although I imagine some Americans are operating there. I imagine that artillery communications, uh, missiles, uh, surface to air, perhaps, uh, Night vision, small arms, all add up, but don't compare to what's been spent. Uh, then there's the corrupt element. It's all going to Ukrainian pockets. Thanks. Well, you know, part of this is that when you look at these bills, is that the money's handed out to aid to Ukraine. It's then handed to agencies like the State Department, CIA, uh, DOD. The CIA portion is routed through State Department and and, and DOD or it's just blacked out and left out of the public version that you can read uh, in various forms. And then those agencies are given a tremendous amount of discretion uh, as to then what happens with it. And then you also have the report language to the bill, which isn't even always available publicly, where some of that specificity is put in. The report language is like uh, an instruction manual that comes along with a spending bill. Think of it that way. So you don't want to write that all in the public bill. It would be too many. It would be too long and be too many pages. You put it in the report language. The report language is also not kind of bound to the vote in the same way. Uh, but it is every bit as meaningful in terms of how the money ends up being spent. And so a lot of times what lobbyists will do is we don't actually influence the spending bill itself. We just say, oh, there's some money that are allocated to, you know, grants for infrastructure. Well, you just go into the report language and basically write in an earmark for your client earmark some money for your client in the report language, have a member do that. Not me personally, but you have a member do that who has the right kind of weight on Capitol Hill, right committees and all of that, appropriations, ways and means, et cetera. So that's some of what goes on. So so, so a lot of this is that it goes to these agencies. They have a lot of, you know, sort of discretion. And part of that is you would want as, as you know, the environment changes on the ground, part of it you wouldn't. 
So you just don't have a lot of visibility is the reality. Some of it ends up going to NGOs. Some of those NGOs or nonprofits or what have you aren't even real NGOs. They're CIA fronts or there are other intel fronts for even overseas intelligence agencies. Some of it is sent over as cash. You know, a lot of it is sent directly to the defense contractors at, at, in the sense of kind of like a purchase order because the U.S. will send surplus supplies or even non-surplus supplies that are in a warehouse. Then they have to buy replacements from a defense contractor. So part of it is sending over old stuff to get in new stuff from these contractors. So they will have, you know, say a bunch of PVS-14 night vision units. These are night vision monoculars, okay? And let's say they're buying them from, you know, L3 Harris or they're buying from Elbit or... Um, you know, one of the firms out there that, that puts together night vision, they don't really want the PVS-14 monocular because binoculars are generally superior and you can always move one to the side and use it as a monocular if you want. They want to buy PVS-31As. Well, you know, PVS-31As are a lot more expensive than PVS-14s. Military buys 14s, PVS-14s for like 2200 bucks usually, depending on the batch and, you know, the generation and all that. Gen 3, let's say, green phosphor uh, tubes. And the 31s to the military, I think, cost around nine grand. To, if you want to buy them, I think they're 13, 14 usually, depending on where you get them from. Still hard to get your hands on, incredibly expensive. Those are the dual tubes and they're lightweight. The 15s are also dual tubes, but they're heavier. 31s originally for pilots to be lighter weight, swing their heads faster. People like the 31s because they're lighter weight. Anyway, this is nerd stuff most of you probably don't care about. I know a lot about this stuff because it's it's part of my day job. But th let's say this, you know, a lot of military units want to upgrade from 14s to 31s. They don't really use the 14s. They've got extras. They ship those to Ukraine and then they replace them with the newer stuff. So there's all of that. The, the answer is it's all of the above. It's all of the above. That that All of that is what makes it hard to figure out. And I would just recommend if you value your time, I wouldn't even bother trying to figure out because it, it is just so vague, so dark, so clouded in mystery. It makes it very tough. But a great question, Clay. And, um, you know, we do our best on that stuff. And I, I try to cast as much light as I can. But it's, it's all of those things and more probably. But it's all of that. Um, Jove asks here, uh, hi, Jacob. The deep state has used tactics such as sanctions to punish other countries for voting for the wrong candidate. By this, I mean the populace didn't vote for the stooge that, powers, that the powers have planned for, so the U.S. brings crippling sanctions to punish the people of that country. I wonder, has the deep state used J6 as that same weapon? They've ruined people's lives for voting for the wrong guy. If this is correct, do the deep state intend to punish anyone around Trump, prevent other presidential terms? Your thoughts? Well, yes. I mean, of course. Of course they do. Of course, they punish people around Trump. Look what they did to Roger Stone. Look what they did to Alex Jones. Look what they've done to even Trump's family in certain instances. Look what they, I mean, at a minimum, if you're around Trump, you've been tied up in lawsuits, like when they sue me under the KKK Act of 1871. And at a maximum, uh, they file crazy criminal charges against you, like this robo stuff and 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 all of this. So, you know, it's, it's something where, it, it is something where, of course, they punish people around Trump. And the, the bigger effect is not just me that gets punished or not just the J6 people who get punished for waltzing into the Capitol. It is the chilling effect that that has on everyone else. That is really the point. It, it's, it's why I'm not in jail right now. You know, that and, and having good lawyers. I mean, it's not like there was anybody for me to cooperate against, you know, 
I'm not a part of some organization or something. There's nobody else, you know, I'm not part of some conspiracy or something. And so there's nothing like that. And so it just comes down to jail wasn't the point. The point was, look what happened. Are you able to somehow work so damn hard that you can drum up a half million dollars in legal fees out of nowhere in your 20s? In your early 20s? Can you do that? Well, you know, if not, if you're not ready to go through that kind of crucible, you better stay away from Trump. You better not work for Trump. You bet, In fact, it's more than Trump. You better not work for any anti-establishment uh, cause. That's the real effect. It's the chilling effect. You know, whether it's some time in a jail cell or not is almost inconsequential to the whole thing. It really is. Uh, Ian uh, asks here, going to Ian here, Jacob, I appreciate your insights and viewpoints on whether social media, the podcast, Braddock, uh, guessing on other shows, continue to appreciate everything you do. Thank you. Uh, I try uh, to support those who have supported me one form or another, including yourself, whether through financial means or by sharing high quality, valuable information. Uh, okay, for my circles. He says, I want to know your thoughts on sovereign wealth funds. There is a plan to set up such a fund in my country, the Philippines, and some people are concerned about supposedly using a portion of contributions from state pension funds as seed money for it. I'll be sending news articles uh, and related references about it if requested. Uh, looking forward. Okay, so here's here's the deal with sovereign wealth funds. Sovereign wealth funds, you would think, are how you want to run a pension fund, right? If you're going to run a pension fund, You'd want to invest the money. I mean, it, at least to deal with inflation. And, and and you'd want to invest it very conservatively, you know, targeting a 4% return a year, let's say. Not going to keep up with inflation now, but most years that would keep up with inflation and then some. Very, very conservative investing. So you'll have a tiny percentage in, you know, venture capital, you know, growth equity, but you'll have a lot of it fixed income and all that. So you do it very conservatively and you, you'd want to do that. But but in reality, what happens is that now if you're in a third world country, you have to worry about corruption. You know, is the sovereign wealth fund just robbed like happened in Malaysia? That guy's still at large. The the guy who ran, you know, that scheme, invested in the Wolf of Wall Street, all of that. The, you know, what was it? The uh, 3MBD scandal or or whatever it was. Okay, so there's, there's, there's that issue. Now, the other part is that Sovereign wealth funds really work best when you have a small, rich country. So like Norway has a sovereign wealth fund, and it works because Norway has a lot of oil, and they've got a relatively small population. And it's a pretty, you know, homogeneous population. It's not a population that has, well, until very recently, totally open borders where anyone can come and just loot their social welfare state. We do have that in America. They have kind of simulated that, at least insofar as being able to virtue signal. You can't have both. You can't have a welfare state and open borders, obviously. Uh, it doesn't work. But these kind of places, or or look at, you know, Qatar, or look at these Gulf nations that have huge oil, and then they have, um, you know, relatively small native populations, a lot of money constantly coming out of the ground, not so many people to distribute it to, people that do, you, they don't even need so much of it. And then if you invest it, it's like, you know, kind of turbocharging that. Saudi Arabia has a sovereign wealth fund. It's only about, it's relatively small by 
some standards, about $600 billion, which makes it about the size of California's sovereign wealth, you know, pension situations where they kind of invested. Their issue was that they overpromised on returns. Gray Davis, the Republican governor in the 90s, screwed that up. He said, wow, look, the Nasdaq's booming. We can just promise everybody their full salary for life because it's always going to boom this way. Well, it didn't. And of course, now they have all of these unfunded liabilities. Uh, California still operates at a surplus nonetheless. Now, so, so that's the situation. If you have a, a small population and you have a lot of money coming out of the ground from something like oil, it can make sense to have a sovereign wealth fund, basically as the pension. I mean, it, it is sort of the arm of the pension. Now, that's one scenario. Then you have situations like, say, Social Security in the United States. Okay. And people say things like, well, that's my money and I paid in and I'm a boomer and I want my social security. Okay. Well, there's two responses to that. First of all, if you paid into a Ponzi scheme and it turned out it was a Ponzi scheme and the money wasn't there, you paid into it, but you're not getting your money back and we're not going to go rob some other person to give you what you think you deserve now uh, in terms of what you paid into and a promise as it was made to you by a fraudulent scheme. Okay, that's the first argument. That's more of a loose kind of um, moral argument about Social Security. But then there's a much more practical and mathematical argument about Social Security, which is this. Almost nobody who receives Social Security ever paid into it anywhere near the amount that they're pulling out of it. That's the second situation. So... The, I mean, let's say somebody taking five, somebody taking uh, twenty five thousand a year out of Social Security, retired couple. How many years did they ever pay twenty five thousand into Social Security? Come on, did they ever pay twenty five thousand in FICO wise? I mean, maybe if they were ultra ultra wealthy, you know, and had huge income, it's possible. No, it's very possible. I mean, plenty of people pay a lot of FICA. I I've paid a lot of FICA. Okay, I mean, it's, but I'm saying you have to understand people taking money out of Social Security are almost always sucking way more out than they ever put in. And that doesn't even account for something like Medicare, okay, which is another whole situation. So, so that's another argument, okay? You, you have to understand here like 66 million Americans and probably 60 million of those 66 take far more money out of Social Security than they ever put in, especially now that you have lifespans that are that are longer. I mean, if they start tapping Social Security, let's say at, at let's say they work till they're 66 and then they tap Social Security and they die two years later, well, you know, the Social Security in that case won, right? Government keeps the rest of that annuity, Social Security won. But if they go on for 20, 30 years after retiring, or they tap into Social Security earlier through disability benefits, things like that. I mean, it's it's just the fact that they never paid in anywhere near the amount that they take out. So that's the reality. You can choose to fund that or not fund that. Obviously, that's what they call the third rail in politics. Nobody's allowed to talk about entitlement reform. You aren't allowed to run a campaign on it. Uh, it has only worked in a few instances in statewide races. You can't talk about cutting Social Security because the boomers vote and the boomers want their Social Security, whether or not they're really owed it from a moral or mathematical standpoint or not. That's the reality politically. But the question is sovereign wealth funds. And the situation is that 
if you have something like Social Security, which is a bankrupt situation, right? If it were a situation like FTX, it would have to declare Chapter 11. You'd say cease all payments, cease all collections, whatever is in there, whoever's owed, send them two cents on the dollar, send them a penny on the dollar, send them half a penny on the dollar, right? It would probably end up being a third of a penny on the dollar or something if you broke it all down in one single year. But because it has the force of the government behind it, it can keep itself going by taxing new people, dumping money in. And in fact, there aren't even enough tax collections to to do it. There aren't anywhere close to enough tax collections to do it. So then they have to issue debt to do that. Now, the whole question of sovereign wealth funds in a situation like that becomes moot. Because if the situation's operating at, say, a you know, 100% unfunded deficit each year, the program's operating at 50% unfunded deficit or 300% unfunded uh, liability deficit each year, then there isn't really anything to invest. They just have to kind of refill it from outside money each year. And then even if they did, um, do you go tap into that? It's never going to generate enough interest to, to make sense. So that's kind of the issue is it, it sovereign wealth funds are what are what rich countries do as the name sort of implies sovereign wealth the nation's wealth gets invested and it can do a lot of good and then the the income from that can build cities can advance the country gulf states have done a really great job at that i mean they're great examples of this so in a country like the philippines i imagine that the sovereign wealth fund will be rife with corruption uh, and will probably not do very much good. Uh, but nonetheless, it will probably still do more good than not. And so I would say it's probably a, a good bet. But anyway, that was an extremely long-winded response to that question. Um, I'm sorry about that for those of you who don't care, but that's my two cents on sovereign wealth funds. Uh, there is uh, some word that the Trump 24 campaign may be in trouble Uh, USA Today's Suffolk University poll uh, finds that Republican-leaning voters now say they want Trump's policies, but a different standard bearer for them. This is out of USA Today. 31% want the former president to run. 61% say they prefer some other Republican nominee who would continue the policies that Trump has pursued. They have a name in mind. Two-thirds of Republicans and those inclined to vote Republican want Florida Governor DeSantis to run for president. By double digits, 56 to 33%, they prefer DeSantis over Trump. Now, you can draw a lot of conclusions from this. I'm going to just just slow down, slow down, and, and just remind everyone of this. Could this mean what the obvious conclusion is? That you know DeSantis will be the nominee and not Trump, and Trump will keep selling silly NFTs and, and running the you know bot-infested platform known as Truth Social? Well, possibly, possibly that's the conclusion that ought to be drawn, but it's also possible, and we we might say probable, but we can't really guess the possibility or the probability of this, that, that something new comes to light, new candidates enter the race, new things come to light, and then you learn things about DeSantis where you say, hmm, okay, he's not quite the guy. You have to remember DeSantis is a very young, 43-year-old man, um, maybe 44 now, 43, 44. He's got a lot of time to run if he wants to. He has not been a national figure for any long period of time. His Google results are sparse. When you even Google DeSantis and you go to Google search tools and you click the years, say 2001 to 2012, there's like zero results, okay? 
And I understand he was a JAG officer and he had a security clearance and, you know, he wasn't exactly all over the internet. Uh, but I'm saying, you know, there, there wasn't much there. Now, they will attack DeSantis with things that are both real and fake. The question is, how serious are the real things that they attack him with, that people attack him with on all sides? How serious are they? How does he respond to them? Do they matter to voters? Do they matter to him? And then when it comes to the fake stuff, well, they're also going to attack him with fake stuff. Now, the question will be, does the fake stuff ring true to people? So are they apt to believe it? No, not far left people on Twitter. They'll believe anything that's bad about DeSantis. I mean, you know, are they, you know, are, are independents apt to believe it? Are Republicans apt to believe it? And then also in the realm of the fake, um, how does he respond to it? Because having fake accusations leveled against you is something that is very serious. It is part of politics. It is par for the course going back to the Revolutionary War period and going back all through history. You look at what went on between, uh, you know, like John Adams, for instance, and his political rivals, okay? Like, say, Thomas Jefferson, Adams and Jefferson sparring, okay? Serious, serious, you know, libel was taking place. Defamation was taking place. Uh, all of that, okay? Fake news galore. It's as old as politics, and it's always been a part of American politics, and always to the degree we see it today. Always, okay? Understand that. Now, the question is, how do people respond? How true does it ring? You know, like, for instance, if someone came out and claimed that DeSantis were actually a hermaphrodite. Well, I mean, I don't think that would ring very true to people. I don't think that that would be particularly hard for him to deal with to the extent he even did deal with it. So it's it's just not something that would be tough. So you, you have to keep all of this in mind, okay? You have to keep in mind that, you know, DeSantis, I, I understand, acted as a professor for a period of time. I understand that he would occasionally, he was a young man, he was a young professor. They were talking about law students, okay? They're older students. He'd occasionally be known to fraternize with the students. And I should be very specific. I'm not saying have sexual relations with. I'm saying um, socialize with, um, party with. There are photos of this out there. Now, I am not alleging that DeSantis during this fraternization with students did anything wrong. What I am alleging is that I'm saying in this environment, any professor, any professor would be very ill-advised to fraternize with the students, to party with the students, to deal with the students outside of the setting of the classroom and monitored uh, open door, open door office hours, any professor. I would say that the professor would be especially foolish to do that if they intended to get involved in politics and even more so if they intended to get involved in Republican politics in the future. Especially foolish because there is the likelihood, the possibility, I would say it's a likelihood that any one of those students motivated by anything can say anything at any time, whether it's true, whether it's false, whether it's somewhere in the middle whether they are consciously lying about it or whether they have been told it so many times or remembered it so many times or misremembered it so many times and gotten the feedback of it that was positive such that they actually believe it themselves. Yes, people can believe things that aren't true. People can believe things 
people can believe they saw things and heard things that they never saw or heard. There's a nutty woman, for instance, up in, uh, she's up in Alaska, I believe, that claims, for instance, that I had a very long running uh, sexual affair with her. She's out there on Twitter. Her account gets deleted sometimes. Really nutty woman in her late 40s, I think, mentally ill. And she claims I had a long-running, torrid sexual affair with her in, Canada, in, in, um, in, in Alaska. In Alaska. She's never left Alaska, to my knowledge. And I have never been to Alaska. And I certainly never met her, and she's never met me. She's obsessed with me. She then claims that I dumped her for her friend, who may or may not be imaginary. And look, she believes it, all right? She really believes it. I mean, I believe that she believes it. That is something that's that's real in the sense that it's real to her. And, you know, if you have a situation where you then have another witness who's motivated by something and you're a presidential candidate and it turns out you were drinking with students at a party as a professor, well, now there's the possibility that accusations can be leveled and they could ring true. We know they'll ring true to Democrats. We know they'll ring true to the mainstream media, the the left-wing media in particular, but all mainstream media. They'll ring true to people who don't like anybody who challenges Trump. Will they ring true to independents? Who knows? So I'm just saying this is something that there's a lot of blind spots. What I'm saying here is there's a lot of blind spots with DeSantis. There's a lot of uh, areas with DeSantis that have not been explored. And, And they can't have been explored given... Uh, that he has only, you know, ever run for Congress and then a governor. Okay. It doesn't mean there's anything there, but those blind spots will be explored and there will be things that emerge from those blind spots that are true. And there will be things that emerge from the blind spots, uh, scandals that are, that are fake. And we just have to wait and see if you understand. Okay. You just have to wait and See, uh, somebody writes here in the chat, it's heartbreaking to say, but Trump is too old and seems he's out of his thunder. But DeSantis gives me an establishment smell and I don't see a good alternative candidate. Well, you'll, you'll see other candidates come up. I mean, whether they'll be any good or not, who knows? Uh, Brian Kemp looks like he might run. I don't, I mean, God only knows, right? Just, just, we, we can wait and see here. We don't always have to have the, you know, situation. He says that Hermaphrodite explains the voice. Well, yeah, he does need a voice coach. DeSantis really needs a voice coach. That can be cleaned up quickly. I mean, they, they cleaned up a lot of, for example, Kamala Harris was really violently gesticulating all the time when she was speaking on TV. And she had the, an incredibly nasal voice, like she had a bad cold all the time. They brought in a coach, I'm aware of this, to, to coach her when she became the VP pick. And uh, they cleaned a lot of that up. Now, the coaching hasn't necessarily continued constantly, and so some of it has uh, resurged, but they cleaned a lot of it up. It was like you were looking at a different person. So it can be cleaned up. They got to work on that, though. Okay, I want to go over just some quick um, uh, data here. So Ukraine, they're sending over Patriot missile systems. Those have not worked well in Saudi Arabia to shoot down missiles. I don't think they'll probably work well there. They've asked for Israel's Iron Dome. They're not getting it. That's not happening. The Israel's Iron Dome system, their internal system, works much better than the Patriot system at shooting down both ballistic and cruise missiles. There's no evidence that Patriot can really shoot down ballistic missiles. I've never heard of any case of that. 
even in tests, it's not performed well. And it's been terrible at shooting down even, you know, makeshift and low-grade Iranian cruise missiles uh, that the Houthis shoot into Saudi Arabia from Yemen. Okay, I want to show a, a few bits of data here that I think you'll find interesting. This is a map. <clears throat> For those of you listening, you're, you can't see this, but I'll, I'll explain it to you. This is a map that shows the world's um, countries divided into largest trading partners, whether it was U.S. or China whether it was the U.S. or China. And the countries in blue, which are most of the countries, um, you know, they're the ones with the largest, larger trading partner being uh, the U.S. and the countries in red, the larger trading partner being China. Most all the countries are blue. You know, pretty much all of North America is the U.S. Uh, that's blue. Uh, Caribbean, um, uh, I mean, most all except for, you know, what is that? I can't, from this distance, maybe Paraguay down there is... is uh, is uh, is blue in South America, south of the border. Uh, pretty much uh, most of Africa, with the exception of a couple, you know, wasteland desert countries. Russia, blue. Australia, blue. India, blue. Uh, Indo-Pacific is blue. Most of Europe's blue. You know, China's red. They do more trade with themselves um, as well as, what is that, Nepal there? And I don't know, uh, you know, what, Kazakhstan? Maybe doing some mineral work or something? Or nat gas into China? probably more likely. So uh, there you go. And that's the year 2000. Now I want to show you the map here as it's changed. You go now to the year 2018, some of the more recent data we have. And now the map's almost entirely entirely red in less than 20 years. Almost entirely red. Almost all South, South America red. Uh, almost all of Africa red, meaning China's their bigger trading partner. India, light red. Um, you know, China... Uh, Russia, uh, I mean, many places in Europe, Australia, Indo-Pacific, all red. China dominates as the larger trading partner now throughout the world. Interestingly, here we go state by state. And we look at, you know, who's the larger trading partner. It's surprising to see that, you know, or the largest trading partner. For for many of the northern states like, you know, Oregon and Washington State and Idaho and, um, you know, Montana and... Um, North Dakota, South Dakota. Um, I mean, many of these countries, um, their largest trading part, or many of these states, rather, their, their largest trading partner is, um, is, is Canada. That's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, California and, and Nevada, is, it's uh, China. Uh, Nevada, I guess, for gambling. Chinese love to gamble. Everyone knows that. Uh, you look here and, and you go over to you know, New Mexico, it's, it's, um, it's China, Arizona and Texas are both Mexico. Louisiana is Russia. Does anybody know why Louisiana it's Russia? That's the only state, at least that I can see it's Russia. I'll tell you why it's because there's a great deal of urea fertilizer that's made in Russia with Russia's natural gas reserves and refineries. They crack urea fertilizer and the urea fertilizer comes in through the port of New Orleans from Russia. Okay, so no need for Panama Canal, right? It's not coming from China. It's coming from Russia. China makes it too, although it's been hard to get out of China recently. They have export restrictions and things. So it comes in from Russia, goes into the port of uh, New Orleans. And then what happens is all that fertilizer goes up on barges. I just learned about this recently with a lobbying client who's involved in all of this. It's one thing about lobbying. You get to learn about a lot of different areas and, and very quickly. It's kind of like, I guess, like management consulting, but I think 
more useful and, and more fun. Um, and uh, then it goes up the Mississippi and it goes up the various rivers and is distributed to the, the farmland uh, all through the country. And to the degree it has to be taken off and, and put on the railroad, it goes on the railroad. And in rare instances, to the degree it's got to be taken off uh, the railroad and put on, um, on trucks, it's obviously done. I mean, it doesn't go straight from the barge onto the field, generally, of course. Um, so that's that's the reason. That's why Russia is the largest trading partner with Louisiana. Uh, steel, yeah, there's steel too. Um, so things come out, you know, to, to rush out of the port of, port of New Orleans. Um, you know, interestingly, uh, the the one that really stuck out to me, the, the largest trading partner with Delaware, with the state of Delaware, was Switzerland. Uh, that was very curious. Of course, both Switzerland and Delaware infamous for, uh, where you park entities. If you want to have, you know, anonymous business entities or semi-anonymous business entities, shell corporations, Uh, these are the capitals of those kind of things, Switzerland and Delaware. Uh, yeah, there are the other kind of, you know, flimsy offshore places, Isle of Man and the Bahamas and all that. But I'm just saying these are these are two of the more well-regarded places for, for that stuff, reputationally speaking. And uh, they, you know, for Delaware, Switzerland's largest trading partner. I wonder how that exactly, I mean, just cash moving back and forth, I guess, in large part. But were people paying Delaware registered agents to set up things uh, from their Switzerland corpse or whatever? I don't know. But uh, that was interesting. Uh, but you see a lot of U.S. states, of course, it's China. Um, most, you know, I think, Probably that's a large proportion here. You're looking at the map. Anyway, kind of interesting here. Uh, you move on here now, though, to uh, another bit of data. Um, if you account for Germany on the map here, you get to see that, you know, Germany is really the, the industrious powerhouse of Europe. I mean, for Europe, if you count their largest trading partner, not just U.S. or China, you know, which is larger, um, for, for a lot of Europe, it's it's just Germany, Okay. Germany's an absolute powerhouse of producing things uh, for Europe, and they have an insular economy in a lot of ways. I mean, you you go walk around in many European places, and you just you don't see American cars. You see, I I see a lot of I've seen a lot of um, Korean cars, a lot of Hyundai's, um, a lot of Hyundai's, uh, but I don't see a lot of Japanese cars either. Uh, it's because of different, you know, uh, basically tariffs and protectionist policies. A lot of cars uh, all throughout. Uh, of course, France makes a lot too. I mean, they've they've got planes, they've got you know LVMH Group, and they've got more companies than we give them credit for, really. Uh, so that was interesting. And then if we just count the EU as a whole here, which would you know factor factor in France as well and some other places there. When you when you actually give the the EU credit um, for what they do, it's kind of amazing how many countries the EU is really their largest trading partner. So it's not just a question of, is the U.S. or China larger, which is the blue-red map we showed at the beginning, but uh, who's the largest? And um, according to this here, I mean, India trades more with the EU than it does with the U.S. or China. I don't even know if I believe that. Um, You know, most of um, Africa trades more with the EU, most of the African countries, especially Northern Africa, but also South Africa and countries in the South of Africa trade more with the EU than they do with China or the US. Um, Russia, I mean, some of this could be changing obviously because of sanctions and things like that. Uh, Iceland and Greenland. And I mean, it's all, it's a lot of EU dominance. And, and I think some of us forget this, but 
you know, the, the world has has a lot of demand for uh, for European goods. Uh, European goods are 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 well regarded in the world. Um, they are they are they are well regarded. They are uh, re- reputationally speaking, they are they are very um, sought after. Uh, people want you know the purse that's made in Italy. They want the uh, the the cologne from Europe. It's thought as being exotic and and high quality, and and often it is. They want the Swiss watch because it's it's better than the watch that's made in China or or America. There's more craftsmanship to it. Well, you know, Europe doesn't get enough credit, but there's there's a lot of commerce coming out of uh, the European Union, as evidenced by this final map here. Anyway, I just thought that this was interesting, and it it wonders it makes you wonder, at least to me, you know, how much longer the U.S. can can hold on to this hegemony in the world, you know, purely on the back of military strength, on the fact of the dollar reserve currency. I think that's really our our strongest sell. Um, and and on the fact that, frankly, you know, we don't give ourselves enough credit as a country, but. You know, because it's the only corruption that we often see, we don't see a lot of news from overseas. We think of ourselves as corrupt, but there's there's more honesty and there's more rule of law in this country, I think, than in 99% of the places around the world. There really is. Um, you know, America is obviously extremely corrupt, extremely degenerate in so many ways, but when it comes to doing commerce and doing business, people feel really good about doing business here in the United States, that they'll get a fair shake if something goes wrong, or even if things don't go wrong, you'll get a fair shake in the courts. Of course, you know, we, we have a lot of look the other way when when foreigners make money here. They're not really required to pay taxes in so many instances. So um, it's something to, to keep in mind. Um, here we go. Um, a question from Tim here before we wrap up. Somebody says here, I love EU banking. Yeah, I love EU banking too, the way it's just, you know, kind of unregulated in so many ways. I mean, pluses and minuses, but it makes it easier to do business. Uh, Tim Smith says, hi, Jacob, you've mentioned uh, you could have gone into into um, solely finance, but chose the political activists lobbying instead. What led you to that decision? Was it about finance and unsatisfying? Well, I mean, here, here's what I would say is that part of it was I didn't get to choose, right? I mean, when, when Trump retweets you at 19 and you're just a finance guy on Twitter that, you know, and a, a budding finance guy on Twitter that sort of happens to support Trump. And then he starts retweeting you and me in this case, uh, when he doesn't retweet any other civilians over and over again, you know, you don't have a choice now. Now you're the Trump guy. So, you know, you can, you can pursue that and, and make the most of it, or you can attempt to stay in, you know, finance where they're just going to keep coming after you and everything else. So I, you know, took the obvious option that led into, you know, a kind of a situation where I happened to get to know Jack Berkman and he was a successful lobbyist for a long time, uh, already at that point, you know, about 20 years and, um, run his own firm for 18 or so. And, um, something like that. And, uh, and I got into lobbying, but, but as the pandemic happened, what I realized is that I really hadn't left the world of finance. It's just that it went from being the case that wall street was the financial capital of the world. And that changed. The people on Wall Street, they all went home. New York City shut down. D.C. didn't shut down. I remember in 2020, I came out here in in July. I'd been in California for about a month. I came out here and I said, wait a second, I can go to Capitol Grill? Restaurants open? Oh, look, there's Ted Cruz eating over there. Not, I mean, it was, 
And, and it was open. Went to Floriana. I went to, things were open. They did a little fake shutdown, sort of, in like December of that year for like 10 days. It was open. And I mean, the government, they were open. And the, the, the Federal Reserve, they were open for business. And it went from being the case that Wall Street was the financial capital of the world to being the case that D.C. was the financial capital of the world. So in a sense, I, I didn't really change career paths all that much, or at least my positioning all that much. I just moved to where the financial capital was. Well, Wall Street's opened back up to some degree, and if you're talking about issuing bonds or bringing a company public, yeah, it's all there, okay? I'm not denying that. And there's been some, you know, oh, Goldman moves its wealth management arm to Florida, and Citadel moves some of this to Florida and whatever. But you know, it's Chicago and it's New York in terms of, you know, Chicago and the commodities derivative side, New York on everything else. And it's, it, it, it is that way. Um, but when DC came up with $8.2 trillion in a year in real cash, real cash, you know, not leveraged up obligations and IOUs and we mark this on paper as being worth X and we take out a tiny loan against it at that valuation and so it's worth X and we call ourselves that on paper. But I mean, that's the Wall Street, you know, thing. But I mean, real cash, real dollars, real U.S. dollars and eight sent out 8.2 trillion of them between everything in about a year and then kept going. We thought it might be over. 2021 was even bigger, really, in terms of spending. And then they blew out with early 2022 and really did us in terms of inflation when they did that. When that's the case, I'm sorry, but Washington, D.C. is now the financial capital. And in so many instances where you'd have a certain company before that would have gone to New York or you know reached out to people in New York and said, we need an investment banker, what they said is, we need a lobbyist. We want money. We need to do a financing with an investment banker. No, we want money. We need to do a financing with a lobbyist in a sense, either by having, you know, earmarks sent to us, grants, uh, government contracts, subsidies, tax breaks, you name it. So that's really what happened. And, and, and that's kind of what led to that repositioning and, and everything. And, and so I haven't repositioned even as much as I initially thought. Um, so anyway. That was a wonderful, yeah, it was a great question from Tim. Guys, I got to run here. It's been great to have you today on the Jacob Wolf Show. I will be back on Monday at 2 p.m. live here on YouTube, podcast apps, everywhere else. And uh, we'll be back here. Wally says, in DC, money is made and NYC money is transacted. That's, uh, I think that's more and more accurate. Yeah, that's more and more accurate. Absolutely. Money's made other places too. It's, I mean, there's other things, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, even Silicon Valley, so much of the actual cash flow is DC contracts, DOD, and, you know, look at Oracle's real sources of revenue, Microsoft's and Amazon's. You'll see what I'm talking about. All right, guys, thanks for watching. Back Monday, live at 2 p.m. on the show. You can support the show financially. Cash app, Real Jacob Wool. Cash app, Real Jacob Wool. Or you can go to jacobolt.org slash podcast. we got the Gumroad platform there. It works really well. Uh, it's, it's been wonderful for us when we're banned from PayPal and Venmo and so much else. Thanks, guys, for your support there. Share the links, of course, and get the show out there. Uh, help grow the, the audience. And I will see you Monday, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Podcast apps everywhere. Thanks for watching. Have a wonderful weekend in the meantime. I'll see you then.